Scott and I served together on our annual conferences Board of Ordained Ministries several years ago. It was during some of those incredibly long meetings or day-long retreats when I got to know part of his story, including the fact that his young adult son, Joshua, suffered with addiction, and that Scott and his wife cared for Joshua's young son, Braden. On March 4th of this year, Scott posted a picture of Joshua and Braden on Facebook. Both were wearing matching plaid pajama bottoms and green matching shirts that read fun, love, family, together. The words accompanying the photo were not a nod to Christmas, however, but rather echoed Good Friday. As Scott wrote, it is with sadness in our hearts that we share that Joshua passed away from an overdose today. Rest in peace, son. I love you. I read Scott's words, felt an ache in my heart, and immediately expressed sympathy, later responding to an invitation to give via GoFundMe to cover funeral expenses. And then two weeks ago, I saw Scott for the first time at our annual conference. While many delegates to annual conference never ever choose to actually approach the mic, and be called upon to speak, Scott went to the mic time and time again, patiently waiting to be recognized by the bishop. One time he simply wanted to express gratitude to the bishop and his colleagues for the ways in which they had supported him and his family. Another time, he wanted to speak out in support of ensuring that deceased children of clergy would always be named in the annual memorial service. And still another time, he rose to lend his voice in support of legislation that would stipulate just how much time a clergy person can take off when grieving the loss of a loved one. And I suspect that if the truth were told, some people in the room may have found themselves becoming impatient, perhaps even thinking, it's him again. He's clearly in pain, and his pain is making me uncomfortable. How many times does he really need to come to the mic and speak? And others in the room may have experienced Scott's presence <clears throat> as a means of grace, a tangible sign, a witness, an example of how God's promises are true, even amid heartache and pain. For Scott was able to articulate faith even after losing someone incredibly precious to him. <clears throat> and when Scott stood, he never stood alone but always had at least one person standing behind him or a group of people gathered all around him. 
And while Scott might have been able to describe what it feels like to mourn with more detail than many of us can muster, Scott's witness during our time together also had an uncanny capacity to remind me that God's promises to never ever leave us or forsake us are indeed true. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? I suspect that Scott might have had two answers to this very question that we hear God ask in the passage today. The first response might be to raise his hands and shout at God and to say, well, God, it seems that saving my beloved son was a bit too much for you, a rather painful reality that any parent who knows the pain that accompanies the loss of a child might be able to articulate. And the other response might have been to say, well, God, I am devastated. And I may never, ever understand why Joshua's life was not saved. But I know that his death will not get the last word. Thank you for mysteriously revealing how your goodness follows me, even in this horrific season. Whenever Christians gather together, we sometimes proclaim a call and response. It starts with, God is good all the time. God is good. But do we really actually believe that God is good all the time? Is God good when we are the ones walking through excruciating pain? Is God good when we are experiencing hopelessness? Is God good when our bodies are failing us? when we have been diagnosed with a dreadful disease. Is God good when we are waiting and waiting and waiting for God's promises to come to fruition? Our journey with Abraham and Sarah started last week when the Lord came to then 75-year-old Abram and asked him to get up and go to the land that God would show him and his wife, Sarah. God then added a promise, I will make of you a great nation, I will bless you, I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And when Abra finally goes and sees this land that God is given to him, God strengthens the promise to include Abram's many offspring as the intended recipients of this land. 
Such a promise could seem likely if we later learned that 75-year-old Abram had married a much younger woman. But then we learn that Sarah is his peer, someone of the same age, just 10 years younger. She's not of childbearing age. And not only that, but we're told that she is barren. And we heard how barrenness is a metaphor for hopelessness. And still Abram and Sarah go. And while the land in which they arrive is filled with famine instead of fruit, they continue to trust in God, to believe somehow that God's promises are true. But God does not fulfill the promise with any sense of immediacy, a characteristic of God that some of us know all too well. Instead, this elderly couple goes, and then they wait and wait and wait. Well, God continues to repeat God's promises over and over again. And in the meantime, Sarah devises a plan to have a child through Hagar, their Egyptian slave girl, and Ishmael is brought into the world. Abram's name is then changed to Abraham, and Sarah becomes Sarah. And then, 24 years... 24 years after the initial promise is made, when Abraham is 99 years old, God again says, kings of people are going to come from Sarah. Not from Hagar, but from Sarah. And upon hearing this news, we're told that Abraham falls to his face in laughter. Can Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? He asks God, and God not only responds with a yes, but also articulates how the child's name is to be Isaac, a name that literally means laughter. You have laughed, and you're going to name your child laughter. Abraham waited at least 8,760 days for God's promise. To come to fruition. And I wonder. I wonder if Abraham's faith was also accompanied by doubt. Doubt that questioned whether God's promises really are true. Did he want to just go back home? Resettle into the familiar? put his feet up and experience life as a retired senior adult? How do people continue to trust God when walking through the muck of loss, the mess of disappointment, the mire of pain? Perhaps the answer is found in not seeking to see God in only great, big promises being fulfilled, and seeking to see God only in the miraculous, but seeking to see God in the small, and sometimes equally miraculous signs of God actively at work in the world around us. 
than people who continue to stand up and resist evil, injustice, and oppression despite the cost. And individuals who forgive even when they have been done a horrible wrong. And persons who continue to show up for one another, to stand up with one another, revealing how we truly are never, ever alone. In rainbows that appear sometimes immediately after a violent storm. In the hearing of God's promises of life, abundant life, everlasting life, eternal, even when standing right next to a lifeless, breathless body. Yesterday's New York Times includes a guest essay titled, My Church Was Part of the Slave Trade, but this has not shaken my faith. Rachel Swarns, a devout Catholic, describes stumbling upon an article in the year of 2016 about prominent priests selling 272 people to raise the money that was needed to save a struggling college that is now known as Georgetown University. This knowledge that she came across later in life pushed her to dig deep into different archives and other places where she continued to learn about her church's active participation in human bondage. I read these records during the week and took my place in the pews of my church on the weekends, struggling to absorb what I was learning. Amid the flickering candles and the rituals I love, she writes before describing how her family's path eventually intersected with the path of the late Dorothy Day, the woman who founded the Catholic worker who is now a candidate for sainthood. And in her paper, Day wrote about the time when one of Swarn's mother's brothers drowned at the age of six. This tragic loss led Day to gather with the family to pray the rosary. And Day wrote in the paper after that event, the breeze spoke to us of God's goodness and beauty. Describing that day in 1953, and there was no sadness but peace. The words penetrated my heart when I read them again this morning and when I repeated them just now. Gathered at the site of the burial of a six-year-old and saying that the breeze spoke to us of God's goodness and beauty. And I would surmise how precious embodied community that both names and counts on the promise of eternal life are the only thing that is capable of sustaining a family who is grieving a loss of a six-year-old before allowing them to feel peace. Swarns then share several examples of the evil of slavery before describing of how thousands of people left her church when they found out the role that the Catholic Church had played. She then described people who decided to stay and asks the question, why did they stay, before answering it. The church was bigger than the sinful white men within it. While these men could hold slaves, they could not hold or control God. The church, the true universal church depicted in scripture, did not belong to those men. That church, with the prayers, hymns, and rituals of the faithful that had sustained these families for generations, belonged to everyone, including the throngs of newly emancipated black Catholics. These 
families who pressed the church to be true to its teachings are why Swarns and others did not give up on the church. Too many people wait and wait and wait for God's promises to come to fruition. Slaves throughout centuries had to hear how, if you know the Son, you are free indeed. Well, knowing that freedom did not feel anything possible when one is shackled to chains. But on this Juneteenth weekend, continued to ponder Swarn's naming, her naming of the power of people who embody God's truth, who follow Jesus' teaching as the proof that is needed that nothing is impossible for God. I continue to be in awe of every single person who did not turn back from facing resistance, violence, and the possibility of death, but who instead kept the faith and continued to labor even when it felt like freedom was something that they had to wait and wait and wait for until every slave was emancipated in this nation. And I also recognize how we still have so far to go. With the recent report on the culture found within the Minneapolis Police Department to be proof in our nation's pudding. But, beloveds, our actions to seek real change that resists white supremacy while leading to a full embodiment of beloved community, not just saying we're anti-racist, but seeking belovedness for all, might be what enables others to hold on until they are fully freed from oppression. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Perhaps the answer depends on what you are seeking. What kind of theology you've been most steeped in what your expectations of God really are. But we're never, ever promised a life void of pain. And some of us will mysteriously and unfairly endure an atrocious share of heartache and loss. Others of us may feel like we are forever waitlisted for a new job, a proper place to call home, a partner, a child, a healing. And not all of our prayers are going to be answered. In the way that we pray them. And yet something extraordinary can happen. Every single time we keep our eyes focused on what God is up to in the world. 
and then seek to join that work by extending radical hospitality to the stranger. Actively and tangibly showing up whenever a person is in pain. Working to set a neighbor free from whatever is holding them captive. And keeping the faith, especially when others are struggling to believe. And thankfully, not everything depends on our answer to the question, is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? For God has chosen to be merciful and good, even when we are tired of waiting. God keeps showing up even in our hopelessness, not always with salve to take away the pain, but with people whose presence reminds us that we are not alone. And God keeps on offering us incredible invitations to show up and to make a difference. Even when we feel way past our prime, or are struggling to believe our worth. Is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is there anything too wonderful for the Lord? I'll let you answer the question. Amen.